G'day, I'm Heather Maltman and we are back in action for more awesome and insightful stories from regular humans like you and me to big name celebrities that you see on your screens and on a flat piece of paper. This is the One Together podcast and if you are just joining us, we say hello to you. Hello. And thank you for pulling up some carpet. Thank you. Now get nestled in for a great chat and maybe a slight giggle as we remind you, you are not alone in whatever bullshit life is throwing you today, or if you are at peak efficiency, congratulations, well, then this is the podcast helping you get to the next freaking level. So talk about an auditory upgrade. Let's get stuck into it. In 2002, in Bali, two men decided to take some explosives after rigorous training and go to the most crowded parts of the clubbing scene and blow up themselves hundreds of casual tourists, locals, and children. I bet you still remember where you were the day it happened. I bet you remember the headlines, the images of people running, the fear. They had been working on this moment for a long time, and while they were devising this plan and carrying it out, one Aussie man, Andrew Chalby, was just sitting in a bar with 12 of his mates, of only whom seven would survive. They were in one of the bars that was affected by a car bomb, just enjoying a drink, after almost losing his life in a motorcycle accident. Andrew Charby managed to, I guess you could say figuratively, walk away from that incident, and he is gracious enough in this interview to discuss not only what it was like to meet the man who put this whole plan in motion, but he also opens up about his near-death experience, why he still to this day believes that he was in the right place at the right time when it all happened. And he also tells you about his angels who led to his survival. But I don't think he realises even to this day that he might just be our angel. I hope you enjoy this chat. Andrew Chalby. The following podcast contains some coarse language. Please be advised this episode follows the story of the Bali bombings from 2002 and will cover descriptive content. Your story is epic. So um, I guess why don't you share how it all happened, like how you ended up at that place? Because in your book you talk about it like it wasn't wrong place, wrong time. You talk about it like you're saying this is just a part of your life that somehow was, you make it sound like it was like, you were in the right places. I don't know. It's, it blows my mind the way you speak because most people would be so angry about what happened to them. But you're, I don't know, it's like you feel like you've done everything the way you were supposed to. Yeah. So how did how did this end up happening? How did you get there? How did you end up in that nightclub in Bali that night? Yeah, well, it's, um, it's a story that, that starts, you know, a year before as well from Bali where um, my Bali trip in 2002 with my two mates, um, was a celebration of my life because exactly one year to the day before I'd actually sustained a motorcycle accident and broke my neck and the fracture of my neck was C2 vertebrae, three back fractures. Um, you know, my love for motorbikes um, is just one of those things. I still ride a motorbike today. I love motorbikes. And, um, yeah, so we, um, when my two friends said, do you want to go to Bali on a trip? I said, yeah, I've been there once. And... Um, love to go with you, you know, I'd like to go diving. And they said, well, we don't have diving tickets. So I said, great, well, I'm with you. I'll go to Bali. They booked it. Mm-hmm. And um, the three of us, so it was Glenn Foster, Glenn Cosman and myself went to Bali. And 
you know, it was, it was an epic trip. It um, had its moments too, you know, its funny moments, uh, you know, entering the country and, you know, with an expired passport and things like that. But, you know, it was like I was meant to be there because when I did get to customs and I arrived at Bali, actually bribed my way in. I read that you you arrived at Bali and the customs officer said that you only had five months left on your passport, mm. not six. And yeah. as a result, he was like, I'm not going to let you come in, but you yeah. can if you pay me yeah. money. <sighs> Which I did. So, And then he know, said you had to pay him on the way out as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, he never got his money on the way out. No. And I, I went to Darwin and worked the least yet. But, yeah, so, you know, being in Bali with my two mates for me was going to be a great holiday and um, we got through the custom things after I bribed the customs officer and, um, you know, that might have been that might have been a turning point. If I'd been sent home, I would never have been there in the bombing. But then the guilt I would have carried for not being there with my two mates on that night, that that I couldn't have dealt with that, I don't think. Mm. So, yeah, got through the customs, went to a hotel, very much like the Gold Coast, beautiful and sunny. Everyone's around the pool. Pool bars are happening. The music's on. You're in a pair of shorts, T-shirt, thongs, and mm-hmm. you know, you know, fifty bucks in your pocket, and it gets you twenty beers. You know, it's that type of type. It's my of trip. kind of holiday. Yeah, my kind of holiday. <laughs> so you know, um, uh, it was an amazing, you know, first couple of days there in Bali mm-hmm. too. Went and saw Jimmy Barnes play. We oh. hired some motorbikes, and you know, we um, we started travelling around the island. How good. Yeah, it was a great trip. But, um, you know, How many days in were you by the time you went out that night? Five nights. We were there five days before the bombing, yeah. So you were in the headspace where you've just, you know when you go on holiday after working for a really long time and yeah. or you've been sick or whatever and you're finally getting away from it all, yeah. it usually takes a few days for you to get into holiday mode. And unwind, yeah. Yeah, so you've just, like usually about five days in is when you hit that mm, mode yeah. where you're like, I'm good. Yeah. I'm chilled. Yeah. So you've just hit that mode mm. and then your friends ask you to head out to this bar, right? Like yeah. it was kind of a group decision on where are we going to go. And I think one of you, because you've got two mates called Glenn, right? They're both called Glenn, yeah. Yeah, got a, one's got a double N. Yeah, that's <laughs> double right. Double N yeah. Glenn, yeah. One's shorter, one's taller, one's blonde, <laughs> one's brown hair, yeah. <laughs> right, gotcha. So did you, who was it who suggested the bar? Like who, who like how did that come about? Glenn Cosman, yeah. I'm right. Short blonde guy, yeah. Damn it, Cosman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, how did you go about getting to the bar? Talk us through that because I've I've read it, but yeah. for someone who hasn't read your story, yeah, talk us through how you got to the bar and what that was like leading yeah. up to it. Sure. Well, we we um, we went to Gutto Gutto. It's a nice restaurant on the beach. The three of us, two Glenn and I. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we look like you know three gay guys from Sydney, but um, we went to dinner and. Um, yeah, and then Glenn uh, Forster um, wanted to watch the VHs next day. It was supercars always on in October. And um, so he said, let's head into um, into Kuda, which is a nightclub district, and and um, we'll find a bar we can watch uh, the next day, the ra- you know, car racing. And, um, yeah, so we went in headed in and um, went to Paddy's Bar. And um, that was a very popular bar, Paddy's Bar, right opposite the Sari Club. And... Um, Two for one drinks. Hey, young, young, three young entrepreneurs. Damn straight. Two for one drinks. Bargain. Body shots. So we're sitting there having a few rums, you know, white rums, and it was a great night. You know, mm. it was um, Paddy's bar at that stage. You know, it was full of people, tourists, and you know, I remember um, a girl we were talking to celebrating her birthday on the island there in Bali, and yeah, it was a great night that so far. Yeah. Yeah. And what time was that roughly? It was about ten o'clock. Ten yeah. p.m. And. 
did you know, like sitting there with your mates at the bar, right, I just want to, I just, because the way you write about it in your book, I wonder if I can actually find the spot. I highlighted mm. stuff because it oh, really sat with me. Um, where is it that you describe about it? Okay. So at the time of the bomb, there would have been about 450 to 500 people in the Sari Club and it was jam-packed. The further you got towards the rear of the club, the busier it was because as the night wore on and more people arrived through the front doors, they shuffled back towards the rear of the club. Only mm. a centimetre or two would make the difference between death and survival. Um, so one of the things that I love about Australia is we have like that, you know, that limit. There's only yeah. a certain amount of people that can go in and out of clubs and stuff. Yeah. So that they don't have that in Bali. It's just like the more people in, the better it is. They That's just, it. Yeah. yeah, right. More so people in, you can overcrowd a club over there. There's no no counters on the door. So yeah, you just pack them in like sardines and everyone's, you know, everyone's having a great time. Is there any screening process like we've got here? No. None no, at no, all. No. So you've got security on the entrance, but they're all there and just um greeting you on the way in there's no right. metal detectors no body searching for weapons or anything else you know plus you're on a, an island barley and everything you know is perceived as pretty innocent back then yeah yeah that's the thing though it's like with barley i don't i don't remember anyone ever coming home with instances of barley being dangerous apart from scooters Scooters yeah, exactly. were always the most dangerous thing that you could do over there it was like yeah. your parents always said you don't get a scooter you'll get in trouble blah, yeah. blah. and that was kind of it yeah. So that would have been the most least likely thing on your trip. And it's like, how, yeah. oh, how the world has changed today. Yeah. Um, so you're sitting there at this table. You're at a high table from memory. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Standing at a cocktail table. Yeah. yeah. And you guys are all sitting around. You've got your drinks there. Um, and you started chatting to a young woman that you say that you don't see again. Yeah. I'm going to come back to that. Sure. When... When you were sitting there, were you anticipating anything? Was there anything sinister? Did you see anyone sinister? Were you? Was there anything in your body at all that went, something's about to happen at all? Absolutely not, no. Fuck. Oh, I think that's the hardest part for me to get my head around because when I read your book, you really, you, it's so visceral. Like you can imagine you sitting there with your friends mm. and having absolutely no idea about what's what's going to what's going to happen. You're just on holiday. You're in chill mode. You're not expecting it. So, yeah. what's your next memory like? Were you just halfway through a sentence, and then the next thing you know, it happened? Yeah, there was a significant thing there because, you know, the girl I was seeing was down the front of the club at that stage, um, and then a girl from Brisbane was there. She'd been overseas and hadn't seen Jody. Jodie Kearns for a long time, nearly two years, she was travelling around overseas and she just landed in the Isle of Bali, um, you know, night before and she walks in the club and I say, hey, Jodie, what are you doing here? She goes, oh, I'm in France, London, mm -hmm. I'm heading back to Australia. And I said, I'm in on holidays, gave her a hug, you know, and I said, hey, I'm going to grab a drink, I'll meet you down the front, you know, and we'll, we'll chat. I never got to see her again, never got to see either of those two girls again. But the people that were on our table, and there was like 12 of us there on the table, we were talking to a, a girl that had a dog washing business, her and her girlfriend, you know, and five people died out of those 12 people we were, we were with, you know, and um, we didn't see them again, you know. It's horrific. 
So do you know now how close he, the man was to where your table was? You know now geographically how close or? I know how um, the, the bomber in Paddy's bar set the backpack off and then within, you know, seconds the, um, the car bomb had gone off out the front of the Surrey Club and that was the one that injured all, all of us um, because I was in the front of the Surrey Club. So virtually 15 metres, they, they say, from that front of that club I was. And wow. as I said, it was only centimetres. So whether there was a structure in the way, there was a person in the way or, you know, part of that club, but the debris came off that bond. I was, um, I was in the worst spot in the club you could have been for that initial impact of the bomb going off. So anyone that was at the front of the club basically didn't stand a chance. That's right, yeah. And it got worse. What do you mean? Well, the bomb went off and the impact was, was horrific in knocking out people, killing people, debris, the shrapnel was um, intense where shrapnel had ripped through my leg and my other leg and um, then there was the aftermath, which was a fire, and the fire was possibly worse where it was just a, a wall of napalm because the hydrochloric stuff and the um, chloride is flammable and it just, it just burnt everyone. So we were all covered um, in burns and soot. And those who got knocked out and woke up maybe survived. Mm. If you didn't die from the initial bomb and the debris and all the shrapnel that they loaded into that van, and then it was the smoke and the fire that, um, that caused the most damage and a lot of people died, obviously. Just quickly, the two men that... Um that did it, were they, uh, were, they, were they suicide bombers or did they survive this? Did they do this and then walk away? The backpack bomber um, blew himself up in the Paddy's Bar across the road, diagonally across the road in Sari Club and that was supposed to be the diversion to bring everyone out in the street to, to the ignite bomb. that car bomb, which is a horrific way to, um, to create the most amount of casualties maximise the damage, which is what they wanted to do. But no, the other, the other bombers um, detonated the, the car and, um, yeah, the, the, the bomber and uh, you know, Amorosi and the, the, his brother and, and the other accomplices that made that bomb, you know, survived and um, eventually went to trial. But, yeah, um, that's a long story, isn't it? Mm. But... You know, focusing on what happened that night is, um, you know, what you see and what you experienced and what you saw, um, witnessed and, and heard, it's etched in your mind um, forever. Yeah. There's a part in your book uh, where you talk about the moment you regain consciousness. Yeah. Um, and this is the part that, uh, I'm not going to lie, it ruins me, so it's kind of hard for me to read out loud, I'm sorry. Um you say, after a few minutes, I regained consciousness and for a moment it was all very surreal. My senses were dancing. It felt like I imagined hell would feel. It was like being trapped in an oven and I looked up and all I could see was the glow from the flames which had taken hold of the nightclub canopy. 
The enormous energy and the heat from the bomb set the whole club alight. Where were Glenn and Glenn? <laughs> where was N and Double N? What happened to them at this yeah. point? Did you, because you talk about where you went and um, mm. uh, realizing that you weren't able to get up, but do you, did you know at that point where they were? No, no, not Did that, they know not, where not you were? You guys no, just got separated? Not at that moment, yeah. So the, um, the bomb blast went off and it basically leveled everyone. So you, you got flattened or you got thrown, you know, okay. meters. From the blast. Did you get through? And the shockwave. Yeah, I felt my body just go weightlessness. But that 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 was also that feeling of being knocked unconscious as well because Far the out. bomb blast is, is so such a shockwave. You know, that the bomb blast was so large that, you know, it, it created a tremor, you know, an earthquake tremor and it was registered, you know, as a tremor, you know, that blast. Because it was, it was you know, a massive bomb. Yeah. But that moment when the bomb went off, and the two Glens and I were standing there amongst some, some other people we were talking to. Mm-hmm. You know, you're separated and you wake up out of an unconscious state and you're looking around and everyone is covered in soot. Everyone is, is, is you know, black. We're all black, covered in soot. And um, the, um, the two boys had managed to get themselves out of that club at that stage. So, right. um Glenn Forster, the taller one, um, had um, had all his shrapnel hit his leg as well, and he um, was was blown onto a small Glenn. So Glenn had some shrapnel in his leg. Um, Glenn Cosman gathers up Glenn Forster and pulls him out the front of the club right. and across the street, and um, tries to tourniquet Glenn's um, ankle and leg, and then says he's tried to come back into the club for me, but the canopy had already collapsed. And um, he he just he could just came to realization. He said that there was no one else getting out of that club. So then, how did you get out? How did you get out of that club? So when I woke up, um, I tried to stand, and my left leg was at right angles. The tibia and fibula had smashed, and my leg was um, so shrapnel had run right through that foot and that leg. That was at right angle. When I tried to stand up, my right foot, my toes were missing. so I, I crawled, so I started crawling. And um, I remember someone behind me, and it was a female, I'm trying to wave her forward, and she's a flame tree, a whole um, costume was on fire. She was um, on fire. I believe I passed out one more time, I woke back up, and the heat was so intense. So I've crawled away from the heat, mm-hmm. and I've crawled to the front of the club, luckily, not the back. There's so many casualties in the rear of that nightclub, and they couldn't get out couldn't get over the back wall, they perished. So I, um, I'm crawling to the front and I actually fell down the crater where the, the car was in the front street um, and that's where I, I, I meet my first angel you know, mm. the night. And you talk about that angel so beautifully. So that first person that you meet, would you like to reveal their name? Yeah, Anthony McKay. And Anthony was the one that... Um, helped you through your first instance of finding out that your legs weren't working the way that you would hope. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was the one that put, was like a piece of tin, I believe. Um, they put you on a piece of tin and literally dragged you to mm. a driveway. Yeah. And that's where they dragged a lot of people that had come out and you basically all sat there waiting until a ute showed up 
yeah. from one of the locals and basically yeah. locals were just because ambulance, you know, there wasn't enough time for the ambulance yeah. to get there. There weren't enough ambulance to help everyone. And this ambulance came past, uh, sorry, this ute came past and they literally just dragged you and put you onto the back of the ute. Yeah. And that's how you got to hospital that night. Yeah, but it wasn't for three hours. Yeah. So you sat there for three hours with life-altering injuries, not only life-altering but life-threatening. Yeah. How many, did you pass out at all in the time that you were in that, on that driveway? I probably believe I did, yeah. Yeah. You know, my experiences immediately after Martha the bomb was uh, Tony yelling out, you know, and, and saying mm-hmm. I need some help and um, there's a guy still alive and he dragged me across the street and, yeah, they put me on a piece of corrugated iron and moved us down the laneway where we could be away from the fire. Um, I I said, you got torn a my leg. Um, Anthony being uh, a off-duty soldier at that stage, young soldier, um, torn a my leg. Another guy wrapped up a T-shirt and um, put the T-shirt and his fist in my right knee, which had a, a massive hole in it, and they torn a torn a my right foot. Um, massive loss of blood I had, but. You know, luckily um, I was young, I was fit, you know, I'd always played sport, football, martial arts, boxing, sailing and stuff and, um, you know, I was fit and um, in sport I'd been knocked out before so I, I knew what the feeling was like but I knew I was in a lot of trouble mm-hmm. and, um, you know, Tony was amazing. He was my first angel before my second angel arrived. So in a way, like had Anthony actually gone to war? Not at that stage. He hadn't been deployed at that stage in his career, no. So that was his first experience of combat. Was probably, seeing probably civilians was, probably, get yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. I would say yeah. Um, I would say that more than likely was his first experience of dealing with over six hundred injured people, and the body count at the end of the bomb was two hundred and two. What was it like for you? Because you are, for people who know you, the kind of person that wants to help. Sure, you're a big helper. You're involved in rotary clubs. You're involved in CEO sleepouts. You're constantly doing something for other people. You're involved in so many charities on the Gold Coast, it blows my mind. You're always trying to do talks online and help other people with your very own story. In that moment, you couldn't help anyone. What was that like for you being someone who's so active and and always being there for the people around you? Yeah, it's... Um... You know what? You you carry that guilt that you couldn't help other people as well. Um, your self preservation kicks in first, where you go, you know, I can't get out of here. You know, I've got got to get away from the heat. You know, because it felt like you're in love and, and your skin was burning, and it was. And um, to try and help someone, um, and not being able to do that, that actually, um, you carry a lot. Of, you carry a significant amount of guilt in that one. It's fascinating. It's really um, fascinating to hear you say that because when you talk about it, and I'm sure so many people Mm. are hearing this with me right now, you say that you felt like you couldn't help anyone, but do you realise that as you were coming out of the club when that woman was literally on fire, in that moment you weren't thinking about you, you were actually trying to help her? Yeah. You were still attempting. But I wasn't able to. But that's because you passed out. Sure, sure. 
and it's just, you know, in that moment you were still attempting to be that person and help someone else, you know, when you were in such a bad way, you were still trying so hard to help someone else. That's all I hear when you tell your story in that part. And I've read that part where you talk about the guilt that you felt in that moment and I don't hear a man that wasn't attempting to help other people. I still hear a man who was trying to help others, you know? Yeah. It's, in, um, it's in my family's DNA. It's in my DNA. Absolutely. What I do in my profession, you know, running a security company, I always like to try and be mm. that protector. Um, my father was also, you know, in the Army Reservist, um, in National Service, my brother, Reservist. Yeah, my grandfather went to Gallipoli, you know, it's um, wow. our family's got a history there of Army Protective Services and I followed suit running a security company 29 years. Wow. Wow, it's really uh, it's really in the DNA, like you said. That's um, it's pretty incredible. You go on to talk about um, getting to the hospital and the yeah. way you got there. <laughs> like I don't know many people that would be on a piece of corrugated iron while a ute is bouncing along and your foot is dangling off yeah. the edge of that corrugated iron and suffer through it rather than tell people that they're not doing a good enough job. So instead of... <laughs> I guess, helping yourself still in that moment, you were trying to help the people help you. I Do you realise that? that? Like... I remember that significantly, you know, the pain of, of that leg bouncing around um, because the bones had been smashed and I was hanging on. Oh, the pain was horrific. I remember it. Mm. It was excruciating. Um, and that they didn't understand that that was what's happening. Yeah. They didn't they didn't know and they couldn't get what I was trying to tell them. Yeah. But rather than like becoming, you know, someone who like, I mean, understandably, if you'd had a go at them in that moment, I would have been like, that's fair. Your your foot is dangling off the corrugated iron. And instead, you suffered through it for as long as humanly possible until they realized. I was hoping it was gonna cut off and <laughs> like it was just the moment that I, I that moment I remember that. That's horrific and I couldn't communicate to them and um, they're trying to help me, you know, they're trying to transport me to a hospital, you know. It's um, There were people running beside the ute, crying, screaming, having their hands out, you know. That, that night was just the things that you remember and things that you, you just can't get out of your mind, you know. is um, Like I said, it sets you in your memory forever, you know, there's no avoiding it. What was it like when you saw people's faces and them saying that they were sorry in Balinese to you for what had happened? What was that moment like for you? Oh, the emotion is the, the Balinese, the beautiful people being Hindu, and for that to occur on their island on that night, mm. um, the stories of people, um, the Balinese that died and their families and, and children orphaned, but still, yeah, they apologise and... Every time you go there and they ask me when I'm in shorts, they look at my leg and they go, what happened to your leg? What happened? I go, Bali. They go, Bombali, Bombali. They go, I'm oh, so sorry, so sorry. But the night when I was in the ute and they're all running beside the ute, mm. um, crying 
outstretched hands and they're all running, trying to assist. They're amazing people. They're beautiful people. Mm. That's why I continue to go back there. I love that, like, throughout your book you still pepper it with these, like, really beautiful moments of connection. Mm. You're very big on connection. Yeah. And even before we started the podcast we were sitting down having a coffee and when I got very emotional about something, you reached out to hold my hand even after everything that you've sort of been through through your life. Sure. Your ability to want to connect is just so strong. Have you always been like that or has it been tenfold since this event that took place? Well, I don't think my personality's changed a great deal. You know, I was always, um, you know, happy, great sense of humour, um, always wanting to help and be the protector, even through my young business days, mm-hmm. you know, being president at Junior Chamber of Commerce and we used to raise money to try and um, do all the printing of the cards for prevention of youth suicide and things like that and then, you know, assisting other people in business and mentoring people now in, in my larger business life. But, yeah, you know, you and I um, talking on a level there earlier today and we're talking about something that, that you know, affected you, yeah, mm. and I did reach out and hold your hand because to me it touches everything. It, it's it's that that caring and um, that genuine, you know, and I, I, I need that too. I need the support from my friends, my family and, and my mates and, um, yeah, I, even though I feel uh, as accomplished and tough and, as I am, and, bullet, <laughs> and bulletproof, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I still need people in my life to, to ask me how how are you, how you doing, how yep. you going, and you must be the same. Very much, very much. It was a uh, it was a very incredible moment, and I feel like um, I feel like there seems to be this horrible stigma that's happened because of you know the Me Too movements that are going on around the world today, and all these horrible issues between men and women, Mm. I feel like men are so afraid to comfort a woman now physically and to have you hold my hand like that, it was actually a very special moment for me. So thank you, by the way. Like you continue to to do things in my life so far from knowing you for the last little while that have really really changed my perspective and really changed my life moving forward. So that's what you did for me. I'm very lucky that you're here today. Me too. Yeah. I know. Time for a quick break and for you to hear about the products that One Together gets behind. All right, drinking alcohol is a pastime in Australia that you just can't get away from. All right, it happens over here. In fact, it's a big cultural thing the world over. But if you're anything like me and you cannot drink very often or you like to be mindful of the effects that it has on your body, but you also don't mind the odd wine or sundowner as well, do I have the gift for you? I actually do. It's called Body Armor and it's actually this really smart drink that was developed by a team of dudes that wanted to protect their liver when they were drinking alcohol, right? So it actually helps with the effects of hangovers, which is awesome. It means that you can actually get up and get into the day if you've maybe gotten a little bit too frazzled the night before. But also it's recognized by the TGA over here, which means it's categorized as a medicine. And that, my friends, is really difficult to do. Even pregnant women drink it for nausea. So it's this really boss stuff and it will help you out a lot. It really protects your liver and all of the good things that you need it to do when your body isn't doing good. So you can get it on their website. That's bodyarmor.com.au 
or you can get it on their socials, bodyarmor.au. That's A-R-M-O-U-R because they wanted to keep you in the mix. Get it? Yeah, because they thought of you when they made it. That's a little joke I added in for you. Thanks for staying with us. Everything we endorse is fully backed and loved by the team at One Together. We do our research on every company or product to make sure it's either healthy-minded or it will serve to give back to the community or even the environment in some way. So let's get back to that discussion. So uh, moving forward, you're in the hospital. Let me see if I can find the part where you talk about being in the hospital because it's... uh, there, it, was, it wasn't like you just got to come back to Australia. There was like a whole ordeal that you had to go through. Um, okay, so before I read this part out, um, I love the way you write it because it made me laugh, I'm not going to lie. Like it was very funny the way you talk about this moment. I think you know the moment I'm talking about with one of the guys that was trying to help you. Oh, yeah, sure. Like it just made me giggle. I was yeah. like, oh, you poor thing. Like you're just you're struggling so hard and then the anger just got the better of you. It can be pretty direct when you need me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I run a security company. I'll not run the florist. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So... By this stage, you've been in this hospital in Bali. It is overrun with people. There are so many people that are sick and injured now. Um, It's understaffed as well, obviously, because there's not enough people to tend to all the people that have shown up. Um, You're going backwards and forwards from x-rays trying to find out exactly the extent of your damage. The people that are taking you backwards and forwards from these x-rays, they don't actually really work there, so they don't really know what they're doing either. And... You have two very bad injuries. Specifically, we're talking about the the fact that one side of your leg, so by this stage you knew that um, you needed to be amputated on one leg below the knee from memory. left leg, yeah. Yep, and then on the other side you knew that the front of your foot needed to be attended to, but you weren't sure the extent of the damage there as yet. So this poor young guy, I believe his name was Bob, right? Oh, yes. Is it Bob? Yes. Yeah. You say, I can't remember any time in my life when I actually, when I've actually been serious about telling another human that I'm going to kill him, but I was serious and I was really angry and upset. I said to him, no matter what it takes, I'll use my last breath, I'll find you and kill you. Just, I laughed so hard at that because we've all had those moments where we're just so livid by something. Yeah. But you must have been in such physical pain to get you to that point because yeah, you're was. such, you, you seem such a placid man. Yeah. And in the time that I've known you, I've only known two instances where you've gotten to that level. And, yeah. And this was one of them with poor Bob. I know. So when it finally all came about and you found out the extent of your injuries, yeah. tell us what ended up happening. So, um, Run us through the different how many surgeries because there, there's not it wasn't one it wasn't like no. they just went all right we're just gonna go in and sort out both legs yeah talk us through the different extents up until the point where they finally shipped you back to Australia which was it was days later no it was a long time it was uh, mm. it was over eight and a half weeks yeah so in sustaining the first amputation in Bali mm-hmm. at Sangla Hospital they took um, about the ankle. And um, and part of my right right foot with my toes, and um, so we triaged in Darwin and I'm on the second Hercules plane. Um, 
were all stacked on bunks. Um, it, it was really the first pain management we'd had with morphine and pain management getting on to that Hercules jet. You know, the, So up until then you hadn't really had any pain management? You were... Look, they ran out of everything in Bali, those hospitals. They were ripping curtains off to use as bandages. They were, you know, there were civilians there, you know, helping tend to the wounded because, you know, the staff had just not had um, ever seen six or 700 people, you know, injured like that. You've got 200 people dead. You've got hundreds, five or 600 people injured with shrapnel burns and everything else, and they're all flooding into all the hospitals. So, you know, you're there and you're being... Um, tended to at the hospitals and you're being sprayed with silver from head to toe to try and stop the infections. Um, so getting triaged at the airport there at Dempasar and then loaded into a Hercules jet um, was amazing. We were, we were stacked four high on bunks and given ice to cool us down and we had that, that pain management of morphine. The RAAF were amazing. John Howard was our Prime Minister at the time back in 2002 and he did the right thing and got us the hell out of there. Yeah. We were dying there. We were going to die there. Yeah. I'll never forget I was actually at a bar when he announced that they were sending people over there to bring you all back. Yeah. You should know the cheer. We erupted. I was living in Sydney at the time and yeah. we were overlooking Kirribilli and because we were in a bar as he announced it, oh, man, everyone just cheered and clapped and I've never experienced anything like that. Like yeah. I've seen you know, the Blues take on the Maroons in State of Origin and had elation. This yeah. was next-level elation. Yeah. Like we were so proud of a decision that he'd made yeah. and it was, we, oh, man, we were so happy to know that, like, he was stepping in to do something. Yeah. I can only imagine what it was like on your end for us to go yeah. through that on our end, you know. We were so lucky that, um, you know, pol politician from either side, mm -hmm. e either politician at that time it just happened to be John Howard um, and he had the support of, of all parties and he'd just gone and sent those Hercules jets in to go and get us and they plucked out tourists too from other countries loaded them onto jets brought them back to Australia to look after and that was you know wow. the next the next chapter of my story was obviously arriving in Darwin and arriving at Darwin Hospital I was on the second mm -hmm. plane on the Monday morning yeah. after the Saturday night, Saturday night bomb um, and just for the record, you've only just seen Glenn and Glenn by this stage. You, you didn't actually get to see Second Glenn, did you? Because Second Glenn was in a different hospital. No. Oh, when did you finally see them? Was it back in Australia? Back in back in the Gold Coast, like eight, Holy and, a half, crap. eight and a half weeks after. Yeah. Well, you know, I was in I was in such a poor state. You know, I was you know I was dying there in Darwin. So, you know, the story in Darwin is. Significant. It actually mm. changed my life, you know, and it involves part of my family as well, you know. Mm. Well, one of the doctors there, from memory, had to literally cut away constant infection, right? Yeah. So it wasn't like you just, you know, had the amputations and then you had pain management and everything was kind of good after that. You literally went through multiple surgeries to cut yeah. away infection, um, uh, constant. There was constant pain. You you talked about phantom pains and things like that. So it was like it wasn't like they did the amputations, gave you pain management, and you were fine. It's like you could still feel pain from a leg that that part of the leg wasn't even there anymore. Yeah. That just would have been sorry, but what a head fuck! What an absolute yeah. head fuck! Yeah. 
How are you so level-headed today? To have gone through that much shit, Andrew, how are you so level-headed today? You blow my mind. What got you through those moments? Well, I'll tell you, my mum got me through the Darwin moment where, you know, I arrived in Darwin. Um, I'm a young guy. Um, I'd been in Bali those five days or whatever. You know, I'm well suntan, pretty fit-looking guy at that stage. Um, and my wounds were all wrapped up after being amputated in Dempasar, Bali, uh, Sangla Hospital. And my mum arrives on the Monday. You know, my mum got the last seat on one of those flights to Darwin. She arrives on the Monday and she is an XSRN nurse, like a repat nurse. And she just looked at me and my wounds and she said to doctors, she said, can't you see the gangrene? Can't you smell the gangrene infection? They hadn't unwrapped any of my wounds for 12 hours and um, basically from, you know, my legs and waist up, um, there was just some um, shrapnel on my side, but they hadn't seen how significant my wounds were and I was dying there. Well, from what the story was that my mum had told me that um, doctors and surgeons had then come in, had a look, unwrapped my wounds, which were amputated um, and they needed the drainage, they needed management and that's why I had to have two more amputations on that left leg and my half foot on my right foot. You know, um, my mother, she hadn't arrived that day, you know, she saved my life, there's no doubt about that, with her experience and her being there, you know, and that was the first hurdle to get through. So from that point, because I was so sick, um, I was in um, ICU for 10 days and um, the experience I had in, in the ICU was significant too. Uh, I um, had visions, you know, of, of my, you know, my bombing and, 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 mm. and I thought that I was somewhere else and, you know, just um, the things that I witnessed um, in my memory, you know, the dreams that I had in, in ICU. And we talked earlier about an experience I had as well where, you know, I thought that I was in a better place and a lady was offering me a, a tray and, and a tray of cocktails. Mm. And I can't remember what she looked like, but it was like a, a, a beautiful woman, sculptured, great body, lovely outfit, wide brim hat, um, and she's offering me a tray of cocktails. And you know what? Um, I discussed it later on. It was such a powerful experience that I thought that I was being offered, you know, something or a drink to a better place and I was being welcomed to a better place. And that's um, where my mum had said that I'd flatlined on the Wednesday and they resussed me. And, you know, I went through horrific times in that ICU unit um, and the infections that, um, that they treated because they're all um, infections that Australia's not used to. They were infections from the bomb and from the sewerage falling into the crater and they were infections from, you know, um, that, those conditions over there, which is, you know... So they cured one infection and another one and another one and, and my lungs were really struggling because we'd all inhaled, um, you know, our lungs were actually burnt on the inside and full of soot, you know, so you had all these respiratory problems and all these blood problems and things. But you know what? They got me through it 
um, the 10 days in ICU. I came out of that mm-hmm. um, after they um, kept me incubated there and kept me asleep for 10 days and um, and that's when they sat me up um, for the first time on about day 12 and told me what happened to me and that I'd been in a terrorist bombing and that I'd lost one leg and half a foot. Wow. So up until that stage you didn't really know... No. What had happened to you? No, I didn't know what happened to me at that stage, no. You were just going through the motions? Yeah. Wow. It's amazing that moment you talk about where you felt like there was this woman sort of kind of, I guess, enticing you to another side and then you came to. You also talked about... um, the canyon thing. Mm. Was that in that same moment or was that a yeah. different moment? It was. What did um, it feel like? What did it look like? It was an experience I had in, in ICU and it felt so it was, it was visual. There was just colours everywhere and I was catapulted from one side of a canyon to another side like a superhero and I'm visiting places and mountains. It was, it was surreal where you look at it in an unconscious state, but then it becomes something that I talk about with my mum when I come out of ICU and I said, I had this experience and it felt like I was flying from one side of this massive Grand Canyon to the other side, you know, weightlessly. Was it scary? Um, I don't know at that stage whether I deemed it as scary, to be honest, but I'd actually told my mum about it when I mm. came out of that ICU and I told her the experience about how I fought thought that I was being offered an invitation to go to another place, which I then now deem as I was being offered, you know, an invitation to go to the afterlife. Yeah. And, um, I'm a big believer in there's something something happens too. after we die. I am now, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I don't think that you can really understand what we're talking about unless you've been touched by it in some way. When, when my father was um, dying from pancreatic cancer, just before he passed away, he'd sort of told me that he didn't believe that anything happened after we died. And I was like, yeah. okay. And I've always been a sceptic. I've been mm. like, well, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. And I'll never forget the next morning when we had to come in after he'd passed away, my sister and I and my boyfriend at the time, we stood in his room. Mm. i got to tell you, his, he was there, like physically his body was there, yeah. but the room was just thick with his energy. It was yeah. like it felt so visceral. It was like you could touch it. Yeah. It felt like it was right, like he was right in front of you, like you could yeah. grab a hold of it if you wanted to. Yeah. And he was a pilot and we looked outside the window all of a sudden, like we all looked out the window at the same freaking time yeah. and it was perfect flying weather. Yeah. Perfect. It was the most yeah. perfect day to fly. And we were just like, this is, yeah. like I looked at everyone, I was like, do you guys get the weird feeling that I get? And they're like, yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden it was gone. His whole energy just, it just yeah. went. It just went out of the room and we were like, Whoa. And we all felt it at the same time. Like we all just went, whoa, did you guys just feel that? Like he just sort of left the room or something. So, yeah, I am a huge believer that something has to happen after we die because it's just too intricate when you see someone going through those moments and to hear you say that like 100% I completely believe you when you say something took place. Yeah, I'm an absolute believer not just because I grew up in a Catholic household and I know that there's, you know, God mm-hmm. in heaven, but, yeah, absolutely. My experience yeah. was one in wanting to cross over 
and go to a different path. But I didn't want to go. My life wasn't over yet. It definitely wasn't over yet because you end up meeting the man behind the whole thing. Mm. How the fuck do you do that? Like how do you go from having such a horrific experience, Andrew, to having the strength to face that man, especially Mm. when he's physically left you different, Mm. emotionally, mentally, you are forever changed. You will, you can't take away those memories. They're there now. That's, that's happened in your life. Yeah. How, do, how does that happen? How does something like that happen? Was it your idea? Was it? No, it was, um, I was privileged enough to be on 60 Minutes program three times and, and um, one of the producers earlier on uh, 60 Minutes asked me to, yes, one of the producers on 60 Minutes, um, Alex Hamilton, asked me to come and join the Channel 7 Sunday night program for a 10th year. And uh, she rang me one night and I remember the phone call. She said, uh, Andrew, I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to take a lot of courage, but I want you to consider doing a story on Channel 7 Sunday night 10 years on. And um, she said, I want you to go and meet Nazir, the bomber trainer that trained Amorosi and the bombers. In, in Afghanistan, in warfare, and he's in Jakarta. He's apparently repented and he wants to help um, make a difference and to try and detrain some of the um, fundamentalists in prison. And she said, we want to go and meet him. Would you do it? She said, I, I can't think of anyone else that would do that. Did you so just get I, um, a chill, chill down your yeah, spine? Yeah. Was it anger? Was it just I, a um, mix of everything? I'd actually, um, I'd actually on the way home from work, and that when she when she rang, and she, uh, I pulled over in the car, and um, after we immediately after that conversation, I said, you know what, I need to think about this for a moment. Yeah. She said, have a think about it, and she said, I'll talk to you soon. Hang up. And the emotion just flooded over me and I immediately rang my sister and asked my sister what I should do. What did she say? Well, she she thought it might have been dangerous in case Nazir had um, wanted to. Yeah, uh, like what if it was a trick or? Sure. What happens if you wanted to make another statement, wore a bomb vest to the meeting and, and, you know, yeah, I considered all of that. Okay. But... um, 24 hours later, I, I rang Alex back and I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. I want to do it. And I want to be the person to meet him and I want to be the person to do it. <laughs> you got to say, it's not every day you get to meet the person that tried to kill you and killed 88 Australians, killed 202 people, killed a girl you're seeing, you know, and killed one of your friends in there, Jodie Kearns, and... Yeah, so, yeah, I wanted that opportunity to meet him. So, wait, the young woman that you were dating at the time, she actually... She she was on the island in Melbourne and she died, yeah. She died that night. Oh, I did not know that. I didn't realise that. Very sad. So, yeah, I wanted wanted that challenge. I wanted to meet Nazir and I wanted to tell him how he affected my life, my family, how he took my leg, my foot, how he killed 
200 people because he trained them. He trained those bombers to make that bomb in Afghanistan. He trained them in warfare in Afghanistan knowing what they're going to do with that knowledge and that and an expertise to build a bomb. He knew. So he was an accomplice to that, all of those murders. And he went to jail. And the only reason he got out of jail um, was because he turned them in. Wow. So he was a marked man. He was definitely, like I said, he was dead man walking really at that stage. Wow. But he wanted to, um, he agreed to meet. Why, he, I don't know. Is he alive today? Yeah, he's still alive today. What's that like for you, knowing that he's still alive today? Like, I can't, I couldn't through my rehabilitation and recovering from my injuries, I had made a decision that, you know, I needed to divert my energy and my anger to healing rather than, you know, having all this anger and, and, and not being able to heal. You know, just straight after Bali, um, being in hospital, I was aggressive. I didn't want anyone touching me. You know, I, I just wanted to die. I also, um, before speaking to my parents and my mother, I wanted to end my own life. And I was okay with that. And that's where you look on my Instagram and it goes, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't wish to die. I've never been afraid of death. But it is true. I just don't wish to die. I've got a lot of living to do. And my mother was right. You know, my life was spared for a reason and I wanted to do something with that life. I wanted to do something significant and I wanted to have my own life and I wanted to have a good life and I'm doing that. So that, that's my reward for living. I've got a second chance at life. So I'm not going to have my life destroyed by anger and resentment and regrets. So, and that's why I can deal with the loss of my leg and my foot and my mates. Um where I can, I can come to terms with that. I can put the, the tragedy behind me in some ways, mm -hmm. but it's never going to stop you having those memories of, of what happened that night and what happened in the aftermath. You're reminded of it every day, you know. Yeah. But in meeting Nazir the bomber, it was amazing. We travelled to Jakarta. We went to the rooftop. He walks out wearing a suit, you know, three-piece suit, and he goes to shake my hand. Did you shake his hand? Yeah, I shook his hand, yeah. What was that like? Very emotional moment. Can you remember what his hand felt like to touch? Strong. Was it a firm handshake? Yeah, yeah. Did he look you in the eyes? Yeah. Can you remember what your what was going on in your brain at that moment when you were touching this man's hand for the first time? Sure. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm protected, I don't, I don't take lives, but mm. I wanted to take his life, yeah. Wow. And I'd uh, contemplated it mm. while I was there in Jakarta. I thought about it the moments leading up to our personal meeting and I said to him that uh, I swore if I ever got within two feet of you I'd kill you and I told him that what did he say? I had to but I can't do it and I, I can't do I can do it in defense 
of someone, but I can't premeditate it, hurt anyone. It's not in my DNA. But he um, he he's, he was quite stunned and taken aback by it. We continued to talk about who he was and who I was. Mm-hmm. I was in shorts. I showed him my leg as I have a prosthetic leg. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told him my injuries. I lost a leg, half a foot, massive knee injury, which is recovered. But, you know, I told him how many children he'd orphaned by killing their parents in the bombing. He trained those bombers. And how many people were missing their families and brothers and sisters and mums. And he broke down, he cried, and he asked for forgiveness. And it was the first time he'd ever cried and asked for forgiveness. And, um, and then he went to embrace me and he hugged me. Wow. In a very powerful moment. It's probably the hardest thing I've ever done. But I'm proud I did it. What did it feel like to be hugged by him physically? Hugged by a murderer? Just, you know, um, I don't know really. Can you remember the way he smelled? You know, it was a hot day on the, right on the rooftop, 30 storeys up. It was a really warm day. You know, it's just um, two men with a lot of regrets and a lot of hurt, um, a lot of damage, and probably him included too. Mm. He would have regretted that. He would not have contemplated them to be so successful in killing that many people. And they were lucky, those bombers that made the bomb, but they were lucky that it worked out the way it did because the way the bomb went off and it just ricocheted right through the high walls in that nightclub and there were that many people in there at that particular moment at 10 past 11 that night was a massive amount, was massive, massive casualty. I know he regrets it, but in that moment when he embraced me and I flinched and he embraced me and he asked for forgiveness, I did say to him, I said, I can forgive, but I cannot forget. And that's what I said to him. I actually remember seeing that moment. I remember seeing that moment because I remember thinking, I'd never heard of that term before, I'll forgive it, but I won't forget it. Yeah. And I've had a couple of moments in my own lifetime where... I've been asked to forgive someone for a betrayal or yeah. something painful that they've chosen to do, some pretty nasty stuff. And yeah. I always, I've always, it's funny, I've always gone back to that moment when I saw you on TV and just thought, yep, no, I can forgive you for this because we're human and we all make mistakes and I've done things that I'm not proud of and, yeah. you know, but to forgive for something so huge, it really shows you that you are a man that lives by that adage of forgiveness because everyone makes mistakes. Did he ever explain to you what, like how he got to that level of extremism? Like, No, no. Um, from what I know, he just um, was an expert in warfare, mm. bomb making, and he knows the chemical compounds and, and how to manufacture it. And you know, work those detonators to actually detonate the bombs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's well trained, and he he trains other people. That's the difference between Australians and us and them. 
we'll defend and we'll go to war in defence. But very rarely, I think, has our country ever gone to war in aggression. We've always gone in defence of people, whether it's Timor, yeah. you know, whoever it is. You know, we've tried to be. It's actually a really interesting you know, point. And I've I got mean, a lot of friends in the armed services and even more now after Bali um, and they they are and they make the ultimate sacrifice, our armed service people, Army, Navy, Air Force, you know, police, ambulance, everyone that is charged with that responsibility. And that's Australians. We're, we're amazing people, you know. We, mm. we will, we'll, we'll give the last $10 out of our wallet to help someone. We'll give the shirt off our back. And that's what makes us special. And that's what makes us a proud nation. This isn't, you've just given me a little epiphany here. And um, I don't know, like, you know, I always welcome anyone, you know, if you would like to have your say on this, like, please feel free to comment um, on the podcast below. But I wonder if the reason why we as Australians are so inclined to be that way is because we've looked at our past and, for example, you know, the way the First Fleet decided to treat the Indigenous people in our country. And maybe there is some small part of us as a culture that has learnt from that mistake. We've seen what it looks like when you completely take apart an entire culture, how painful it is and and the ripple effect of what it does to that culture and we've gone, shit, we can't. We can't have that happening around the world anymore. You can't. We can't be like that anymore. And maybe that's why so many of us fight so hard for, you know, indecencies in other countries is because we've we've seen it firsthand. Like, you know, our indigenous population in our country, they're still struggling. It's so yeah. awful what they've been through, and we're still such a young nation. There's still so much healing that needs to be done with that culture. It's like we've seen firsthand what it looks like when you act like that towards another yeah. culture and. Yeah, I don't know, you just gave me a little epiphany there. Maybe that's a possibility, I don't know. Yeah. But um I agree with you, I, there's yeah, I don't know. Australians are trying to correct injustices. Mm. We have a very valuable indigenous community with mm. their art, their culture and their experiences in, in being on this land yeah. longer than obviously white people. And um, and I respect our elders as well. Yeah, past, present, future. But yes, I I think Australia is learning and we've had to obviously send people to war in defence of what we want. I mean, we're lucky that we've had Anzacs and we've had people mm. lay down their life and that's why I respect our armed services so much. And, and they, they were the ones that, that saved all those Australians that night. Mm. They brought us home. So... And I know that we, we occasionally make a mistake um, as a country. We make errors in supporting war when it's it's someone else's fight and we shouldn't get involved. And that may have been, you know, going back as far as 1960, mm. you know, when we go to war, support America, and you're trying to fight people in the jungle, which is very unfair. But... Moving forward, you know, we're a nation that, yeah, wants to help people. So we deploy people to, yeah. you know, Timor, Papua New Guinea and, and yeah. Iraq. And that was amazing that, you know, that that guy that night, Tony McKay, a young soldier, had gone on to be one of my best mates and he was deployed overseas twice. And he introduced me to some very proud people that we uh, we have within our armed services that look after us 
and they look after our borders and they keep us safe at night. And that's why we have a free country and we're able to, to live a, a lifestyle better than the people that tried to take my life. And that's why I'm extremely grateful. Is that why you do so much work with RSLs and things like that? Because I've worked for RSLs mm. and they get so many budget cuts and it's like you are literally cutting funding from the people that if yeah. they didn't exist, if they weren't in this world today or at the time when something was going down, we would not have a free world. We would yeah. not have the country that we live in today. They've yeah. literally fought for our safety and our country to exist in some way. Yeah. And we continue to cut their funding and, you know, like a lot of people don't realise but some homeless people are actually armed services men and women who have struggled with what they've been through and can't continue to function in everyday society. A lot of mental health practitioners deal with people who have PTSD every day. They have no idea how severe it is. Is that is that part of the reason why you do what you do with those clubs? Or? Yeah. yeah. You know, you've got Excalibur, you've got 360, you've got, you know, Mates for Mates, you've got all of these things that mm. um, are supporting ex-veterans and ex-soldiers and we know that there's excess of 15,000 ex-service people, soldiers, men and women living on our streets in Australia. Yeah. And without getting too political, we do give a lot of foreign aid. Mm -hmm. My opinion is that we should be looking after our own residents in Australia because we have a lot of um, yeah. Australians that are, that are migrants and they've come into this country and they've shaped this country and they've brought their expertise to this country. Um, and you're right, we should be looking after our Indigenous people, our elders, and, um, and our families, and we should be looking after each other. And I do agree with you um, without politicising it too heavily, but, yeah. yes, I do agree. And I've actually been the main beneficiary of our Medicare system because yep. I was looked after in hospital, I was medicated, I was offered counselling, yeah. and, um, and I took that counselling in Darwin and, and, it, and it made me value my life again. Um, and yeah, and I've been supported ever since with prosthetics, you know, that I can I can walk, I can run my business. And in running my business, I employ people, I pay my tax, I look after my staff, you know, and I'm able to get on with my life. If I'd been injured as badly as I was another in another country, I wouldn't have those benefits. And I, I understand how lucky I am. If, for example, you know, you're listening right now and you're struggling with something very similar to what Andrew's been through, what would you say, Andrew, like how would you speak about it? Like did you make a choice? Did you Do you remember a moment in your recovery where you just went, I refuse to let this get the better of me or was it a succession of work or talk us through that? Like what what is that one thing that you would say right now? Well, in you asking me that question, I have to admit to you at the moments when I didn't want to be here. Mm -hmm. the, um, the time in Bali when I was in that hospital, I refused treatment. I took my, ripped off my tourniquets and I said, leave me alone. I actually fought the doctors and nurses off and said, leave me alone. Um, I was a pretty big boy then. I was 95 kilo, pretty fit, mm -hmm. and they weren't going to touch me. I said, you know, and they're trying to calm me down, sedate me. Yeah. I'm ripping off those tourniquets. So I didn't want to live. The damage that was done at that time in Bali. And I was in shock. Okay. Um, 
I then progressed on to Darwin where, you know, I'd had those counselling visits and this poor lady, Amanda, that was in Darwin, she'd done the first counselling session. She came in for the second one and uh, she's, how are you going? And let's talk it over and all that sort of stuff. I'd go, yeah, right, you know, and I was still very much emotional and the third time she'd come in was after I spoke to my mother and my mother was significant in that period where she said, oh, son, I know what you want to do. She said, you want to go home and then you want to kill yourself, don't you? That's why you want to get out of here. I said, yeah. She said, I'll make you agreement. She said, if you want to come home and then you're not happy, she said, come and say goodbye. And we shook on it. We literally had a handshake agreement, my mother and I. So I said, all right, I'll have the courage now and go on. So from there, that became my recovery period where I showed that courage to go on and I, I, was, I was okay with that because I had that control back where I could make my own decision. And I'm not recommending to ever end your life. You know why? If I'd done that, I would regret it. I would have missed out on everything that I could have done for every person I'm doing now through my mm -hmm. charities, through work, and even having my own life. But I did have the courage to get that dare from my mother, have that conversation, and we shook on it. And when that poor lady came back in to do the third mm. session counselling, I said, I'm fine now. She goes, why? I said, I'm not going to hurt myself anymore. I'm not going to hurt myself. Wow. And those positive actions then created the positive results. I started getting fitter. I did my physio, my breathing, my lungs improved. I remember the weeks when, you know, um, I couldn't breathe virtually because our lungs were all burnt. But, you know, I improved and my fitness was great. And after eight and a half weeks in Darwin, you know, they flew me home. I was on a stretcher, but they flew me home. Um, back into the same ward I was uh, the year before after a motorcycle accident on the Gold Coast. <laughs> You're like, welcome back, Andrew. <laughs> That's You're what like, happened. Hey, guys. <laughs> the food was delicious. How could I say no? Yeah. Um, I just, I, I don't know. I just, I guess I'm so grateful that you're here today, you know, and, and like I said to you earlier, I've been going through something in my own personal life that, I mean, geez, it's like nothing in comparison really. I don't believe in comparisons, but um, you gave me an unexpected wake-up call that you didn't mean to give me when we did that interview that day. You definitely, you reminded me to use my voice. Yeah. You also reminded me about humility and about the fact that we as Australians, like you said before, you know, we... We stand up for the little guy. It's what mm. we do. Yeah. And, and ourselves. Yeah. And I realized, like, I'm not, I haven't been doing that. And it completely changed my life. It was actually like, at, it was just, you said it at the perfect time that I needed to hear it. And, you know, if we hadn't met, if we hadn't met when we did, I don't, I don't know if I would have gotten myself out of the cycle that I was in. Like you did that. That was that was your influence, you know, and you talk about your angels in your life that have influenced you to get where you are today. But in that moment, you were my angel. And I guess that's kind of why I started this podcast is because I know what it feels like to be that person that is struggling and you feel so alone yeah. and you just need to know that someone gives a shit. Yeah. And I was like, how can I max reach people who are feeling that way right now? Because you feel it so often, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And I'm just 
I'm just so fucking grateful that you're still here. Yeah. I've never been more grateful for someone still being around and, and for saying yes to coming and speaking and, you know, talking through that moment in your life again because, you know, there's parts of you, you know, they talk about mentally when you talk about something that you've been through, your body relives it in some way. Yeah. And the fact that you did that for us today, that you shared yeah. that, you know, you welcomed me and us into your home, your amazing home that you've set up here on the Gold Coast, like it feels like a sanctuary in here. We're like in the middle of surface paradise and it's just like this beautiful tropical fish and there's a fantastic little snake in the corner. And <laughs> <laughs> I just, I feel like I've just moved into a whole other world and everything else has just slipped away and it's so mm. peaceful in here. And you did that. Like that's your energy. You have that calming effect on people. Mm. We're so lucky to have you. You know, you talk about how lucky you are, but trust me, Andrew, it's, it's us who are lucky. We're so lucky to have you. Um, the only other thing I wanted to talk about, and I'm, I'm so mindful of time because we've been talking for so long and I don't want to take up your whole day, um, there's a part in your book where you talk about the loss of your mum and um, I just wanted to tell you that I'm so sorry. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how. I don't know how you've moved through that after everything that you've been through. You just blow my mind. Yeah. Such an incredible man, such an incredible human being to have to have yeah. gone through that. And it's funny, like sitting with you, I feel her energy around you. Whenever we talk, like she's always on my shoulder, isn't she? She's, she's always, always there. She's always there. She's always there. Like she's always there. That's what mums do. Yeah. Yeah. They don't leave you. No. Um. Especially my mum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, if you want to learn about Andrew's life and and his mother and who she was, like, you have to get his book. You know, it's. Like you describe her so beautifully, so eloquently. Yeah. You did her amazing justice. She, you know, as you were writing, she would have been reading those words. I could yeah. just, oh. I'm so proud and honoured to have sat with you today and talked about who you are and who you are today and who you continue to be. We're so, so, so lucky to have been inspired by you in your life. Um. Before we leave the conversation, is there anything that you feel like you want to add or any any more advice or any more wisdom that you can impart on us to continue to stay motivated or on the right track or if we're lost, you know, like what, is there anything else? Like you just, oh, my God, <laughs> you, you're such a wise man. <laughs> <sighs> Heather, with, um, with age comes experience, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes. So true. Oh, sometimes I feel like I get older and I get dumb. But, you know, yeah, <laughs> I still make quite a few mistakes in my life. Mm. You know what? Um, with, with, with my life experience and, and what I've done, you know, the hard times that I've had and, and some of those have, have been my own making where I've put myself in a position, you know, a vulnerable position where, you know, you, you can't go riding a motorbike at speed and not expect to, to come off. And I did have that motorcycle accident and then... 
went to Bali. So, you know, sometimes in life, yeah, you, you know, have experiences and, and they're not always luck falls on your side yeah. and you're in the wrong place, wrong time. You know, it doesn't help when, you, you know, you're riding motorcycles and, and you have a motorcycle accident. But then I got back on that motorcycle 12 weeks later. I went to the same corner. I rode around that same corner I flipped off on, you know, 12 weeks before and I got round, wow. you know, and I wanted, it's just like you get bucked off a horse, you get back on, you know. I chose to race my motorcycle and I came off and nearly ended up with quadriplegic a broken neck, fractured back. You know, I wanted to get back on that motorbike and that was my passion. My mum hates motorbikes. So, you know, she's looking down on me now <laughs> yeah, going, I, I hate you riding that hard. You stop influencing people to ride bikes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, Mum, but, but I really that, like them too. So. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Tough crowd. You bet. Yeah. No, my dad wasn't into it either. I promised him before he died that I wasn't going to get my motorbike license and I kind of lied. So (laughs) had my fingers crossed. Sorry, Dad. (laughs) But, yeah. Definitely, you know, with with those experiences, you have some life-death experiences. And with with your audience, when they're listening to you and I do this discussion and they're going to say, well, you know, how did you get through it or why did you get through it, you know, as you ask me for, for advice or opinions, you know, is there anything I finally wanted to say is that, look, you know, I had some really dark times in Bali and some things that I wasn't quite proud of in the beginning where I didn't want to have, you know, my life. But I've got to say that, you know, I went down so low into that dark area and I use that expression, the only way out was going to be to rise with the bubbles. And I rose with the bubbles and I came up for air, decided I want to live and, you know, I don't regret it because I would have missed out on all of those things. So if anyone is listening to this and this is our conversation and you have any doubts, pick up the phone, go and see your best friend, go and see someone, get some opinions and advice. Honestly, you have one life, you live it and I don't encourage anyone to do self-harm. Yeah, read my book, get inspiration. Yeah, sure, but... You know, there are going to be tough times and we're going to have to get through them, but we will get through them, mm. you know. I like that you say we. We will. Yeah. It is we because mm. we're Australians. Mm. We're proud Australians and we're proud. We're proud of every nationality, every nationality we've got. Mm. You know. It's very true. But if you're living in this country and you've come from somewhere else around the world and we've welcomed you into this country, yeah, you're now proud, proud Australian. You're one of us. So... Yeah, we will help you. And I, I've benefited from friends, family, and that's helped me, like I said, rise with the bubbles. And um, I now know why I use that expression because I love scuba diving. I've taken up <laughs> I've taken up a lot of scuba diving, you know. Oh, yeah? And um, okay. and I love that, yeah. It's um, it's a new world under there. I used to love scuba diving when I was younger and yeah. um, because – I love running and playing football and sport and bark, boxing and martial arts, you know, and Bali took away my, my ability to run. I took up new sports, you know, um, which is, you know, yeah, diving and things like that. So I'll progress through, you know, advanced diving and I'm going to go and do my rescue courses and things. And, what? Um, yeah, I love it, yeah. It's, a, it's wow. just it's a, it's a thing when you're a double amputee, you, you find out all the things that you can do rather than the things that you can't do. And that's why I'm encouraging people to, you know, hey, things don't go your way. doesn't matter. Make it happen, you know. 
make the change. Find something else. Yeah, make the change, yeah. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your life and so many amazing intimate details about who you are and what you've been through. It's, um, it's very inspirational. And the biggest thing that I'm taking away from you today is choice. Yeah. You're very big on choice and connection. Yeah. Connection. I, I need to remind myself of that. Actually, just going to say it, I get scared of being hugged. So next time you see me in the street, hug me. <laughs> Make me do it. <laughs> I'll be shit scared. But, you know, it's it's so important. You're so right. Like touch is such an important part of the yeah. human experience. So, yeah, thank you. I'm going to hug you now. I'm going to do it. I'm terrified, but I'm going to do it. Thank you. That was a good hug. You had an amazing journey today, you and I. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Today, I dare you to rise with the bubbles just like he said. So if you're finding things really hard at the moment or you're just struggling to find a reason to get back up, that saying in itself is so cute. How can it not motivate you? Now, Andrew's book will be shared on my Facebook page and also he has very kindly signed a copy and is giving one away to a lucky listener. It is such an insightful read and I will make sure to put it up on my Instagram how you can win that one as well because I know you'll want to get your pretty little hands on it or your masculine little hands on it, whatever compliment you enjoy. Now, if you'd like to follow Andrew or reach out to him because maybe you missed out on an opportunity to win this fantastic book, his Instagram handle is at Andrew Charby. The last name is spelled C-S-A-B-I. Remember, you can follow us on the website, which is onetogetherpodcast.com. You may have even found us on there in the first place. You can leave comments on the site if you like as well, or you can shoot us a personal email to onetogetherpodcast at gmail.com. We love getting feedback and we also love your suggestions on whether or not you feel you have a story that you could share that could potentially help other people. Now, there are so many platforms we are on now and the best part, if you sign up to Anchor where we are hosted, you can send us audio messages. For example, hello, One Together Podcast. My name is, insert name here, and I would like to say, insert comment here of amazingness and frivolity. So like I keep saying, we are one together. So we love hearing from you because we're creating a community. It's not about us talking at you. It's about us sharing insights and discussing things as a group. Now you can get extras on the following socials. Heather Maltman for Instagram and Heather Maltman Official on Facebook because I am fancy. You can also get us on the Tube of You as well, which is otherwise known as YouTube. That's a little dad joke for you. This is the One Together podcast reminding you that one is in fact not the loneliest number. Keep getting after it and feel free to pass this along to anyone who might even start thinking slightly that they are not anything other than the absolute shit because you are the shit. You are the shit. You are amazing. Keep getting... You want me to stop? Okay, no, I'll stop. Sorry about that. I got a bit overexcited. Keep listening.